let us begin. And let us we'll begin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Dar Williams. I am a singer-songwriter, and I've been leading a songwriting retreat for the last 10 years. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, this is actually the second time that I've had the opportunity to interview you. Um, the first time was now getting to be a really long time ago. It was in 2014, and it was after the second time I had gone to your songwriting retreat in 2013. And you and I were sitting on a bench outside of the Garrison Institute, that repurposed monastery. You know, you were giving me the opportunity as a, as a fresh audio producer to interview you, and it was great. We were coming right off of the retreat you were talking about why you actually wanted to create a songwriting retreat and why you wanted it to be about writing a song that matters and not just writing a song that will get you famous or writing a song like yours or, you know, but everybody kind of writing their own song and, and being given permission to. And now you've written a book about it. Yes, and that's exactly, and, and thank goodness it's called, well, the book is called How to Write a Song That Matters, and the retreat is Writing a Song That Matters. And the great thing about that title was that it was very self-selecting for people who really wanted to figure out how to get that song out that meant something to them. And so what I wanted to talk to you about this time um, was how you wrote a song that matters to me about art. Um, and we're going to get to that song in due time. But uh, I wanted to start by talking about your relationship with museums, uh, because you've talked about museums both in your book and when we've been to museums together as simultaneously being a place that isn't necessarily about the art itself, but that opens you up into what you describe as poetic thinking, into that place where your mind goes into soft focus and you allow in all of the inspiration. And, you know, I've had similar experiences at the retreat where you have this sense that your aperture has kind of opened up and all of a sudden every mood, every detail, every beam of light feels poetic. And we kind of joke about that, that it's like this is the one week a year where everything could be a song. Mm. Um, but it's not a joke. It's, it's true, and it takes you out of everyday life in a very sensitive way. You just feel sensitive to the world around you mm. and the ideas around you. But you also do talk about museums as, as places that you can draw inspiration from, from the work. So, mm -hmm. so can we talk about this, about, about the different role that museums can play, and, and then which ones maybe particularly inspire you? I think that you really got the two prongs of what are so helpful about museums to the songwriting process for me. One is the poetic thinking because my whole life is sort of filled with the objects that I use to get through that life. And a museum is a place where instead of having that objective relationship to my life, the art is the subject of my thinking. So instead of looking at a chair as the thing that I sit in, I look at its form, I look at its illusions, at its history, at its surroundings, and 
I'm just really appreciative of, of the fact that I'm in a place where that subjectivity is valued. That's why we're all there in that space to enter into, as you said, that sensitized, that sensitized awareness of our surroundings on their own terms. The other is that you'll see something totally whack and interesting. <laughs> it will turn you upside down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, in the book, I say renversé, <laughs> uh, which is upside down in French. But somehow it seems more sort <laughs> more of poetic. like a big poetic somersault, you know. And, um, and that too, to see things changed influences the subjects and the nouns and verbs, literally, of, of my songs and and pulls on my own memories and uh, fascination. Did you ever feel like you had to uh, kind of combat? Like, I think that that openness to the subjectivity of objects is something that you kind of arrive at after you've gotten past the intimidation factor. Because we all walk into museums and we we like smell the weight of it Mm -hmm. in the air. And... If you embrace the weight of it, then you can push through and see all of, you know, become incredibly sensitized to everything that you're around. But I think the flip side can also happen that you can be really intimidated by the weight of it. Have you ever kind of wrestled with that? Or did you always just kind of walk into a museum and just feel like it was for you? You know, my father was an art historian for a lot of his life, and he actually created something called art and man, which I think would have a different title these days (laughs) for, I think it's for the Metropolitan Museum, but it might have been a freestanding thing. But he worked at the Metropolitan Museum for a while. He he worked at uh, Museum of Modern Art for a while. And he took us to visit um, some of the last surviving shakers uh, at Sabbath Lake in Maine. Um, And we sang Tis the Gift to be Simple together with them, you know, so he exposed us to a lot of interesting things and tried to t- bring us to, you know, Klaus Aldenberg sculptures <laughs> that are easy to take in and appreciate mm-hmm. as a child. But he always had this encounter it as you encounter it attitude for us. Mm-hmm. This very unstudied, how does this speak to you kind of approach. And I think it kind of gave me a, a sense of, oh, I'm in a museum. This is my, this is for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's up to me what my relationship to this is going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, a, like a child coming in and flopping down on your couch <laughs> and the mother quietly <laughs> oh, saying, Oh, don't, don't sit on that. That's an older yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> I, uh, So I think I always felt that kind of welcome. But another thing that I think is also true about museums is that there's this kind of, well, I'll say a very gray lady way of presenting culture because mm-hmm. I don't want to name any publications mm-hmm. but um, there's this kind of w- way that we can believe that art is created by certain people who are special and I know that I struggled just with that concept when I was writing songs um, and that is beautifully contrasted by uh, Ira Glass when he said that when we first create something we have this melancholy longing because we are developing such an appreciation and sensibility for other people's art that makes us want to create art but our first art is going to be awful and therefore mm-hmm. you know that that contrast between what we're doing and this acute 
appreciation of the art that's out there is it creates a, a chasm of of sadness and longing <laughs> we all have to get through that chasm of becoming really attuned and appreciative of great stuff and why it's great and how it's great and how it feels and then what we create yeah. <laughs> juxtaposed with that that's a that's a human challenge yeah i think he describes that as like the curse of having good taste Exactly. That it's like it, it just creates that space between you and what you know is good and yeah. and how hard it is to get there. <laughs> like <laughs> that is yeah, yes. I feel you. Um are there particular uh museums mm -hmm. that you've been particularly inspired by and have maybe even written songs in that, that people don't know about? <laughs> What we have up the street from me is Dia Beacon, uh, which is filled with installations. And I would say every room has influenced me in some way. There was a time when we were at a, a retreat and we went there together. And I was looking out the window at a deer being completely messed with by a bunch of barn swallows. I mean, literally, like they went to its tail and it flicked its tail and it turned around and it flew the other direction and then they got him in the tail and it was this incredible drama and very colorful too this green lawn and this bright beautiful deer and it was so organic and and loop loopy you know and then I turned around and saw all of these penciled in grids by Solowit <laughs> and and it and I got that real strong sense of contrast between sort of the organic experience out there and, and humans creating grids for themselves and it did inspire a line about how you know people do their best to define themselves by how they stay within their timelines and their schedules and their punctuality mm -hmm. and and yet really what defines us is how we spill over and that made itself into a line in empty plane and um there was a beautiful exhibit called made in america i think that it was four decades of different sensibilities of uh, of American art. And I think that just gave me a sense of the mythic landscape that kind of woke up our country as I was driving around in it and just made my touring more of an alive thing as opposed to a drag. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that influenced the songs per se, but that sort of mythic overlay <laughs> Mm -hmm. It really helped me that was very much uh, curated in this museum exhibit, you know, Andy Warhol with Elvis and Highway 66 mythology and gas station mythology and those that kind of iconography that helped me um, romanticize our country in such a way that I was able to be more of sort of a, a dreamer out there on the highway. And then there was the song that I wrote in the Fog Museum uh, in Cambridge, which is called Mark Rothko Song. And it's very much, it's almost a, a transcript of what I experienced in sort of a dreamscape as I walked into this exhibit room with Mark Rothko's untitled blue-green painting surrounded by the other paintings and all of the other people encountering the art in the room. Can you talk about writing that song? What you talk about in, in this book, I wanted to 
take a lot of the ideas that you bring about because it's not necessarily prescriptive, but it still uh, lays out some some great ideas for ways to think about how to write songs. And I thought maybe we could go through some of these ideas by actually looking at Mark Rothko's song. So I wanted to actually ask you, we've been talking about the museum space and what museums mean to you. And specific to Mark Rothko's song, something that you talk about in the book and that you've always talked about at the retreats is that there is a difference and a real kind of gulf between where did I go and like, where did I really go? Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear just as a way of our point of entry into Mark Rothko song, where did you go and where did you really go? When I go into a place and I realize that I'm going to be writing a song in that place, I try to go literally to that place to get all of the, the nouns and verbs of where I was, other paintings, people, you know, maybe the security guard, uh, the art students, the sculptures, the lighting, and all of those things, because you don't know what you're going to be drawing from as a, a great central metaphor, because songs are themes, you know, so um, everything means something else. So one thing to do is to go and, and gather up all of that stuff. And um, Mark Rothko's song is an example of where did I go, where did I really go, because where did I go is a museum, and we can make assumptions about what happens in museums. You know, people try to speak more intelligently than <laughs> they're ready for. People try to impress their dates. People try try to be deep. You know, there's a way that we can sort of um, judge the surface experience. But when you're writing and you look at where you went, another thing to say is, where did I really go? What was that space to me? How was that space, you know, bouncing off of me? You know, so I'm in a museum, but where am I really? And where I really went was into a place where I, as a writer, go to experience sort of a softening of my awareness and, and to sort of get the world off of me. So it's like I take away the measurements. I just allow myself to be in this relationship with these paintings and let them speak to my subjective poetic thinking. Okay, so I will actually say at the outset that writing about art is really hard. It's really tricky and you have to also kind of ask yourself why you're doing it because the art already is. And sometimes that added layer, although I, I think that that songwriting is a completely different art that you are kind of overlaying onto this object. And and uh, me as somebody who kind of writes in a more educational way, it's, it's different. Mm. But <clears throat> writing a song about having an experience around an artwork, and, and we'll talk more about this because I think it's, it's an incredibly uh, generous song. <laughs> um, and also in its own way kind of educational and i just i would love to hear your process of writing it and why you felt like this song needed to be written 
I think what happens is I just get a, a certain phrase in my mind and then I build around it and I build around it and I hear some voice saying, why are you writing this? Who cares? And I have to push that aside like a, a very <laughs> determined mosquito. Um, I'm trying to remember what popped into my head. It was a feeling first. When I encountered the painting, I saw that it was called Untitled Blue Green. And I thought, what, what a ironic title because it's gray. You know, I don't see, I don't see blue green. But then as I stood there and looked, it was very much blue green. It was just underneath that kind of smog. And it just hit me very strongly how melancholy that is when people can show you so much of who they are. If you just pause for just a, another second and take them on their terms or look a little bit more closely it was just a, a feeling of melancholy. And I think I just started to write the song right there, that the, the, the blue, it speaks so full. The blue, it speaks so full, it's like the beauty one can barely stand, or too much things dropped in your hand. And there's a green like the peace in your heart sometimes, painted underneath sheets of ashy snow and there's a blue like where the urban angels go very bright now the colder mobile tips the biomorphic sphere then it swings its dangling pieces round to other paintings here that the blue it speaks so full I mean, it was just kind of a pretentious, you know, <laughs> but, you know, the blue would speak so full. It's like the beauty one can barely stand or too much things dropped in your hand. And there's kind of a bad grammar there um, that I think was was how I was feeling this kind of I don't even know how to say this. There's just this kind of, oh, my gosh, look at this piece of art speaking to me. And I'm so insincere that I almost just passed it by and didn't give it the attention it deserved. <laughs> So I think the song started to happen that way. And then I did what I do with songwriting, which is I looked at the whole environment around me and the painting and in the painting to pick up sort of the clues of, of what might be um, a way to proceed. And so I saw the Calder mobile kind of gracefully and very impersonally dipping and turning and kind of being this very uh, gentle but still impersonal presence around all of us people. And, and the people almost had a kind of a turning and dipping and impersonal presence as well. Um, so I mm. took that in and then I kept on looking at the painting. So the first verse was just a description of the painting as I encountered it. But the language is kind of throughout the whole song has a kind of a not great grammar, not very fleshed out narrator because there's a kind of a a sad insincerity in the in the narrator and the narrator yeah. sort of evolves to say you know he had so much to say but more to show and ain't that true of life you know so it the narrator comes to understand how how lightly we walk around other people and don't necessarily take them in when we can um and so uh the song there's this thing that I call the voice of the song and 
the voice of the song was this narrator who's kind of insincere, unfocused, and really comes into focus to understand how this painting was trying to speak to her and maybe we need to pay attention to how things speak to us before they go away. In this case, you know, Mark Rothko, who um, took his own life. Mm-hmm. How does uh, musically, you actually, you, you have this perfect word in your book, prosody. Is that how it's pronounced? Prosody. Prosody. Um, I, I, that seems like one, like I know it's not German, but it might as well be if it's this, the perfect word <laughs> to describe the way that, that music and lyrics support one another musically, because there's, there's so much that you just said that I want to dive into. So I'll just start at the top. Musically, how does the melody and the guitar playing, I've actually, I've learned it myself. And so I'm very familiar with its kind of, um, there's like a, a slightly kind of twitchy anxiety to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was intentional. Thank you. You know, I, I would walk home from the Fog Museum. I, walk, I lived about a mile away, so it's perfect. I would come up, I was thinking about these song ideas, but I hadn't taken them to the guitar yet. And, <laughs> and the guitar part ended up having a nasty B flat in it. Which Tell is, me about it. <laughs> So, which, will you play it? You have your yeah, guitar so, with you. Yeah. So this is. So there's a lot of quick switches between chords, and some of them are known minor major, like the the D minor and the F. Um, but then there's some weird chords, and they are um, to me all of these different chords are kind of like different paintings, like a person walking through. But I say this in retrospect. It's just I came up with this melody while I was walking, and it mm-hmm. turned out to, to have all of these quick switches to known chords and, um, and new chords. But um, the key that I was writing in has this B minor in it. Ugh. Anyway, so, so here we go. And the picking pattern, too, has a kind of jaunty walking feel. Yes, yeah. And a little, you know, picking in general just is going to have a little bit of a a foggier, rainier kind of feel. I mean, unless it's a real, like, up with the roosters kind of, you know. (laughs) But but if it starts with this, you know, it's it's already kind of probably the day that it was a little little misty. So we start with a, we start with a minor foreshadowing one might say <laughs> um and and then it quickly goes to an f a major in that kind of um drying up of of the sentimentality it's sort of a it's sad but but the people that we're talking about aren't letting themselves get too deep into that sadness so then it's also just a day and <laughs> it's a little waspy like yes it's very sad let's not cry in public you know so <laughs> That's the beginning of the verse. Goes there, then goes to a G minor, D, D minor, A. So what I've also done is gone into a lot of different keys at once. So you know the the D minor is in the key of F, and the chords that go along with the F 
are the C and the B flat. Ugh. And so, um, but I go into the key of D, I go into the, you know, I go all over the place. And uh-huh. um, I call the keys houses. And so I, I call this visiting your neighbor's house. So when you are in your own house, you know, you're exploring your own moods and the moods of the, the chords that live in your house and, their, and all your relationships to those. And those are things that you kind of know. But this is like going all over the neighbors, you know, really exploring. Yeah, it's like it's like <laughs> running around like the sky is falling and like exactly. knocking on everyone's doors. You know, or or I would think aptly going from room to room in a gallery <laughs> filled with paintings <laughs> and different kinds of lights and different kinds of moods. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, well, but people people <clears throat> don't think about museums doing that, too. Museums have like a car smash up of different periods and you know you just assume that you're walking so cleanly from one room to the next without ever thinking about how much time is passing and how many movements you're walking through and you know it's just something our brains accept yeah 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 exactly so that's I think that the chords are sort of uh, a reflection of all that kind of light and shadow of walking from room to room and the light Mm -hmm. and shadow of painting to painting and, um, you know, that's my best estimation. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I were to, to critique my own song, that's, I would say that that's uh, the musical narrative that, that I'm hearing. Um, it just goes from chord to chord to chord, and that's a little unusual in, in a song. I have another song called Buzzer that happens really fast where a person feels kind of cornered and has to make a lot of decisions a lot of fa- really fast, and she too goes from you know, major to minor, from key to key, chord mm-hmm. to chord. And that can speak to a lot of things, and we don't have to know what they all mean. Um, but somehow it does, to me, have a sort of an inner logic. It also kind of speaks to how hard it is to follow all of it. Uh, you know, we're, we're sort of going around these thought processes of the narrator and all the people and the, and the paintings, and we're being pulled around from mood to mood, and it's hard to, to process. Yeah, and... And I, in trying to learn the song myself and in telling myself that, yeah, if it's not this chord, it's that chord. I mean, I find that that actually does contribute to the the mood of myself playing the song, that it does kind of create that slight um, anxiety, like a little bit of, of mm-hmm. twitchy going from chord to chord to chord. And I feel like that really helps me understand the voice of this narrator. Me too. Yes. And I think so. And, and what I, what I've learned is that, you know, the form, I, I, you know, there's form and content. I actually call content the message. Content is a little dry, but there's the form and the message and the form can go on for a while before you even start having a message and you can mm-hmm. just feel the feelings of it. And you can walk around with those, uh, those formal experiences and then start to develop the narrator that comes from this. And yes, this has, this is a labyrinthine thing to navigate for our narrator and for our listeners, you know. And it's not unbeautiful. And in fact, it's very fascinating because it goes from key to key, but in a kind of an interesting way, but, mm-hmm. but challenging. Um, not necessarily unpleasant, but challenging. Okay, so uh, enough prosody. Let's get back to the lyrics and the narrative. That first verse... I think the way that you say that what the art evokes 
in you is kind of, how did you put it? You were talking about standing in the fog and, and taking time with that Rothko and what it evoked in you when you actually kind of took the time. And I think that Rothko is very particular, like that is a particularly Rothkoian experience. When I did my, my Rothko episode, I realized, and I even quoted you in it, I realized that there is no way to talk about Rothko without talking about associations. You know, there are artworks that are about narratives, and if you don't necessarily know the history, then you won't quite understand it, but you can appreciate how beautiful it is or what a window onto the world it is or, or whatever. Um, and then there's other abstraction that can, you know, like you look at a Jackson Pollock and you can talk about spatter. You know, you can talk about energy. You can talk about what the painting is actually, you know, what it is in front of you. But Rothko, it's like people don't talk about dissolve. They talk about meditation. They talk about pressing the inside of your eyelids against your eyes so that you get those color swirls. They talk about what you say here. You know, this is the, the blue and the green suddenly take on whole universes of their own that make it relatable to you to kind of capture the experience of standing in front of it and just falling into it and melting into it. And so, you know, you then go from the from there to a, a Calder. And I love the idea of that being kind of people that are swirling around the museum also. So one would say that that is the point of the song, is to describe this Rothko as it affected you. But then the second verse comes. Your behavior is so strange, it's like you can't explain yourself to me. I think I'll ask Grand War to tea. For his flowers are as real as they are all the time. And the sunlight sets the furniture aglow. It's the sun's time as far as people go. How far do they go? Well, his roses are perfect and his words have no. How would you describe where it goes? Well, you know, I have to come back to my dad again. We were at the Katona Museum of Art, which is small and, and has these really exquisitely curated exhibitions. And this one was, I think, on a hinge of time after World War I, and you just see abstraction coming into representation. So it wasn't straight abstract stuff, but it was strange bodies that were strangely formalized into their shapes and very interestingly stylized. My dad very quietly said, well, there was the 19th century with all of its, its beautiful representations sort of going into Impressionism, but that was still a certain kind of representation of light. And he said, but after World War One, and that carnage and the way it didn't make sense. Representation was no longer sufficient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'll never forget, he just, it was so, he just, 
you could see him envisioning all of the poetry and the literature of trying to make sense of the world after World War One, this mm-hmm. giant war that had a beginning that was even hard to source, you know, where there was so much disillusion and, and dismemberment and death. And he just said very gently, representation was no longer sufficient. And art had this new responsibility, potentially, to challenge how we had seen the objects in front of us before, not just Mm -hmm. appreciate their form, but to question our relationship to what was being presented to us, therefore taking on its own playing with form and its own challenging of form. You know, spend a little longer and look at the subjectivity of, of this moment and appreciate the subjectivity of this moment. That seems to me something that I think something like Mark Rothko's paintings challenge us to do. It, it challenges us to be in the mind of subjective thinking, to both recognize it and value it. This, all of that soft dissolve, as you say, to just recognize sort of the, the softness of our reality and to enter into spending more time with that than that the rigidness of thinking that we know exactly what each objects are and therefore what we have to own, what we have to fight over, what we have to get dogmatic <laughs> over. So I think I really love a lot of these abstract expressionist artists because it's kind of meta. They're saying, look at the way you're looking at this. That's the moment that I had with the Mark Rothko painting. Look at how you almost passed me by and weren't looking very closely into this whole world that's not all about your objective reality coming from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. But then you also have a lot of, like you're very charitable to people who don't necessarily want to go there. <laughs> And that's a really important piece of this song to me, too, because the idea of uh, asking Renoir to tea and the flowers are as real as they are all the time. I think you and I might even have two different aha moments in this song. Can you describe what what an aha moment is to you? And then maybe we can we can compare notes. (laughs) <laughs> on this song. The, 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 the aha moment of this was the moment of pure transmutation. That moment when the metaphor becomes the reality. I met her at the funeral. She said, I don't know what he meant to me. I just know he affected me.
So for me, the aha moment was at the end when I say, now the painting is desperate, but the crowds wash away. The, the, the voice of the painting is more permanent and more real than the, the people who just kind of wash, <laughs> wash away like, you know, a chalk painting on a sidewalk. And that moment where the painted reality is the reality and we are actually the, the things that are sort of impermanent and wash away, even though we entered into that space thinking that we were so real and, oh, that's a nice painting um, that somebody, you know, made, <laughs> was, was the aha, was the moment that was emotional for me. It was that final giving Mark Rothko and his painting the due that they deserved and, and the incredible intention and meaning with which it was created. Yeah. See, I think that the next line, too, is also equally aha-ish. Because I, you, you pull off a real trick here because you manage to both tell an authentic story about a painting and how to approach art that evokes something in you. So, okay, let me set the stage a little bit. Whenever I give a talk about a Rothko, uh, I haven't had that many opportunities to, but the MFA had a, a collection of Rothko's that, uh, on loan from the National Gallery in 2017. And so I made sure to give as many talks as I could. And I always started it <laughs> by asking a group of people, um, you know, because I always had a big group because everybody, like Rothko just attracts big groups and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, I would ask the group, okay, how many of you are here because Rothko is just your soul alight, you know? I mean, how many of you stand in front of a Rothko and you just have this incredibly transcendent experience and you just want to be near a Rothko? And like half the group would raise their hand. And then I would say, okay, how many of you are here because of those people and you, you don't get it? You want what they have and and you just don't, like, how are they getting there? And the other half raised their hand. Mm -hmm. And it was nice because it kind of broke open. You know, everybody laughed. And it was like, it was like, there are really two kinds of people who approach a Rothko. Those who do it <clears throat> because they love it. And those who, like, want to understand that first group. And they want it too. Like, they want in. And so I feel like, what this song does, whether this was intentional or not, although I, I kind of wonder how it couldn't be, is that you both have this authentic experience, or at least the, the voice of the song, the narrator in the song, has this experience where they're seeing, they're evoking, you know, this the blue and the green are so evocative. You know, they want to spend the time with the painting. They, they appreciate the painting's desperation to be seen and to be known. And at the same time, Renoir's flowers are as real as they are. Like, that's great. You know, that's that's all I want, too, is that the sunlight sets the furniture aglow. Like, I can see a couch, you know, that makes sense to me, and it's so beautifully rendered. And his roses are perfect, and his words have no wings. You know, that's okay, too. Like, it doesn't have to take me into a transcendent space. It can also just leave me where I am appreciating something really beautiful. So what I wanted to come back to, you you say the line, the painting is desperate, but the crowds wash away. 
and then follow it in a world of kind pedestrians who've seen enough today. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they just, they don't always have to go to a dark place. And, you know, this particular Rothko is a brighter one of his work, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the older he got and the more depressed he got and the more suicidal he got, it gets blacker and blacker. And that sometimes can be asking a lot of a viewer to be kind of pulled into someone's blackness. Not everybody's always up for that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it strikes me as kind of you to understand that these pedestrians are still kind people who have just seen enough and it's okay to, to step away and not necessarily kind of dive headfirst into the darkness. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things going on. I think that you just said something really um, significant about, I think, what this narrator is dealing with, which is, you said this painting that longs to be seen and to be known. And I think that that is maybe what I was wrestling with as a 24-year-old in a museum at that time in my life, you know, they're seeing something and appreciating something and then there's knowing something or, or the desire to be known. And there's so much desire to be seen and to hope that you're represented in such a way that, that people can know you and then hoping that people will, you know, follow those visual clues into you and know you and know you past those visual cues. Mm -hmm. So, I think that was probably the distinction I was drawing, the people who were seeing and the people who were knowing. Um, and I think at that age, I was probably being a little um, flippant about, you know, his words have no wings. At 24, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going on a date with that guy again. You know, like, <laughs> I'm going to go on a date with Mark, Mark Rothko, I, you know, Renoir. Yeah, he's good. You know, and and I think you would have had more fun on a date with Renoir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I don't know, <laughs> he's probably kind of handsy, yeah. <laughs> which is funny because he was not a great painter of hands, notoriously. But I um, <laughs> um, I think for me that that narrator was kind of um, identifying in herself this kind of a bit of. Um, shallowness to be honest I think that I was as I was writing it trying to show someone who was was shutting things down a little too quickly to get to know the person that she's talking to and it's mm -hmm. funny because I I do <clears throat> you know people have asked me if I change my songs I did say your behavior is so male it's like you can't explain yourself to me and then I changed it to your behavior is so strange because that's so you know Wesleyan liberal arts college student, you know, speaking for a friend, uh, <laughs> to say, to say, you know, your behavior's so male, and it is, you know, it's so, it's so categorical and um, dismissive, um, and and that is appropriate. But I think just saying, your behavior's so strange, still kind of shows how the narrator doesn't really want to go in to know the person she's talking to and um she he's kind of like a mark rothko and she's saying you know i just really like looking at light and i like looking at form and these colors and things that have a beginning and an end to how i experience them and don't pull me in deeply um 
And at the same time, yes, a world of kind pedestrians who've seen enough today um, definitely points to the fact that even by the age of 24, <laughs> I knew we all have good intentions. <laughs> and sometimes, yes, sometimes we can, we can take that time to be pulled in and sometimes we, we can't, you know, we're hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're with yeah. a friend from out of town and we're showing them this gorgeous museum, but we also are catching up on really deep, cool stuff in our friendship and letting the, the, these beautiful walls kind of enliven our conversation without our going into those paintings on their own terms. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think that as I was writing it, I was sensing a person who was really aspiring to know and the person who was aspiring to know was recognizing that just wanting to see things wasn't enough for us to know one another with the kind of significance that perhaps life requires. And, you know, so <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot to, to put on this narrator, but I think that that's kind of more her thing with the, with the painting as, as the vehicle for her recognizing, you know, she's at the funeral and she's realizing that we have so much to say, but more to show. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just appreciate a very honest song about art viewing. You know, if you decide to write a song about the people who really decide to go there and the people who take a step back and either want to get there, but can't, or don't put the work in or never wanted to go there in the first place, you know, there's, it wouldn't be crazy to write a song about, you know, Sam and Diane, and you have the the art snob and, you know, the guy who, who just wants dogs playing poker. You know, that's, that's a story. And people can project onto that what they, you know, who they think they are in that song. And, you know, I listen to Mark Rothko's song, and I very much relate to being the one who would try to make the painting not feel so desperate and lonely. Um, But I'm sure I've alienated people in the process. And so it occurred to me how important it is to invite people in. And that's what I hope I I do, you know, with with my podcast. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I've learned to also let them be and only go as far as they want to at any given time. And, and that's something that I had to learn how to do. It took me, you know, I was not able to do that at 24. And uh, it just, um, is this a song that, that you feel like holds up to what you wanted it to be now that you're older? I think there are lines in the song that hold up in terms of that encounter I think a lot of my songs have to do with sort of how we encounter ourselves as we are changing our minds or changing our um, attitudes about things. And so there's this bridge where she says, I met her at the funeral. She said, I don't know what he meant to me. I just know he affected me an effect not unlike his art. And ain't that true of life. And I think that some of that kind of incidental and ain't that true of life stuff is is what holds up that kind of moment of going oh wow you know I know that he affected me and I couldn't put my finger on it but it was really important and I'm really recognizing that now and isn't that true about life you know it it just things affect us and we don't know why and then there's a certain moment when we think why 
where was I at that moment when I could have been taking it in more, but I didn't. <laughs> so I think that that sort of encounter of what is it that keeps me from standing in front of a painting as just my life's work of, of just looking more deeply at things and, and trying to figure out how they affect me or having that relationship of them affecting me. Why isn't that more central to my life? I think that that question holds up. Um, and for me, when I sing the song and saying that the painting is desperate, but the crowds wash away, you know, that what you just said about wanting to be known, I think that that holds up. I think that the painting as a metaphor for that desire holds up. And it's hard to say where my upbringing in a house that was filled with art books and an art writer um, is also in that, you know, my, even my dad, who, who was uh, never asked for more attention than he got, you know, in, in what he did. He does a lot of really great stuff. He's, he's written really beautiful things. And um, my dad doesn't ask to be known any more than you're going to want to take the time to do. And, and I think what you said about that kind of willingness to let people take these things as lightly or as deeply as they can or want to in that moment and, and respecting them for how they're going to encounter that artwork is a lot like my dad and a lot of my favorite people in college um, who really did brilliant things if you stopped and looked, a lot of the people in our songwriting retreat. You know, if you take the time to stop and listen to their songs on their own terms, you know, regardless of their guitar chops or how succinctly they express themselves because they're just starting and you kind of look at, you know, how that thing emerged and really respected on its own terms. It's, it's really profound, but not everybody has the time or the space to do that. Yeah. So um, I think the song holds up with that real love that I have for museums and paintings being the um, vehicle, the metaphor of beautiful, deep, sometimes inscrutable things that deeply desire to be known and a world that does and does not pause to stop and pay attention yeah it reminds me of of to kind of bring us back to the start going into the space of poetic thinking and I find that by being at a retreat um you know I I never want to feel this way at first but first first and foremost everybody who's there brings a really unique and exquisite talent and you don't know that at first you mm -hmm. know like some people are you know some people just wear it on their sleeve and are, are incredible performers and incredible writers and you're just like oh i don't want to go after that guy <laughs> um and then other people who don't yet have confidence in their abilities, myself certainly being one of them at the beginning. I mean, it took me two years to even kind of open my mouth. But um, you're struck because you're so wide open at how much you can kind of absorb some, you know, you're like open to somebody's talent. You're opening, you're open to stopping and letting them 
show you what they've got in a way that only happens in live performance. And I always, what I was going to say, I always start at the retreat, not wanting to feel this way, but being like, okay, who am I better than? Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, like you mm-hmm. walk into that room and we haven't opened up yet. And it's like, okay, who am I going to like, who's going to make me not uh, like feel like I'm not embarrassing myself. Okay. Well, I'm better than that guy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just wait for that voice to dissipate and it only does because I open up and I recognize that that actually like that feeling goes away and it's merciful and it only lasts a week and then I come back to my life and you kind of close back up again and you're not open to poetic thinking or or charity towards your fellow man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's that's what I think we're all trying to hold on to so hard. I think um, museums um you know, coming into a songwriting retreat and coming into a museum can be very similar because what happens with me is I think I have, I have two hours to be inspired. Okay, <laughs> here I am. I've paid my admission and I've come in <laughs> and, and, you know, don't bum me out here. Let's, let's, let's see if, if something cracks open. And all I can think of is um, where I'm supposed to be and am I going to make my train and the thousands of details including my own ego about you know oh my god i'm going to write a song again and what's going to happen to me you know and i think this isn't doing anything for me it's not it's not happening and then i have to spend time with the paintings and then it happens and then it's wonderful because then i get a very big latte (laughs) overpriced (laughs) at the museum itself and i take out my little notebook and and it happens and mm-hmm. and that shift from objective thinking to subjective thinking from everyday thinking to poetic thinking has happened but i have to give it that moment to work on me and to to give it its due and to see it and what i'm realizing as we speak is that that's very much what happened with that mark rothko painting that i saw i i was seeing myself encountering it with my day still on me and Hmm. then i stopped and let the day fall off of me and let the painting speak to me on its own terms which is poetically which is subjectively so that is something i think is really beautiful about coming into a concert or a retreat or a museum whether it's something that's already been created or whether it's a space where we are going to be actively creating and i guess for me, the museum is, is where I come to see things that are created, but also come with the attitude of creating myself, um, that these are very important and to me, very sacred spaces. Um, in a way, I feel very lucky that this is my bread and butter. I have to crack myself open into the world of subjective thinking. That's my job. Um, there's a hazard to, to being in the world of, of subjective thinking it's very liberating, you know, it's very hyper associative and everything is associated to other things and stuff, but then it's like filled with memories and some of them are really embarrassing. There are hazards to to going into the poetic subjective space of self-evaluation and hyperdrive of memories and hyperdrives of of weird associations that are not welcome to us. And yet, if we look at that moment after World War One, where we said, wait a minute, we got way too invested in the the rigid hard objects and calling them what we thought we should call them and and look what that led to you know when we, when we look at that that weight that we put on on what we call reality and see what 
the consequences of taking it too seriously, we realize that it's a it's a, a very important human endeavor to enter into that subjective space to take our own creativity and the created works of others very seriously as as part of what life is. Hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> another hazard of, of being in that space is is also just how necessarily inconvenient it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that knowing that you will be able to dip in and out, I think is, is important because mm. I think when mm. it's gone, you worry it'll never come back. But also, <laughs> I mean, I, I say this now as, you know, with two little kids, I miss that place. Mm. And at the same time, I remember before I had kids, I was once um, yeah, hanging out with my, my nieces and they were much younger than they are now. So I hope, I hope they're not embarrassed hearing the story, but my older niece, she was upset about something. She had just had, you know, kind of a tantrum about something and then, and then moved on very quickly, obviously, <laughs> because she was a kid. Mm. And the tear was still like glittering on her cheek. Mm. And I was, but she was fine. But like the tear from her freak out was just sitting there and she didn't even notice it. But I noticed it. <laughs> you know, I was I was in this this poetic headspace and I was thinking like, God, how that tear and she doesn't even care and where was she and blah blah blah. You know, it's like I was I was inventing all of these narratives. And now I just wipe away the tear and, and move on because mm -hmm. I'm just glad that the tantrum is done. Yeah, yeah. That's and the, you, the, yeah. You can't sit there staring at the tear when yeah. <laughs> when your kid needs to this diaper change. The caretaking space is not a very subjective space. And I had a therapist who once said, vigilance is not a very creative state. Hmm. The state of vigilance is not a creative state. And um, because I was, of course, talking about how self-conscious I felt around certain people, and, you know, to be in that constant state of vigilance about how we look, how our houses look, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a creative place. Creative is, is a, a more surrendered, a more gentle, even place. What you describe about the, the songwriting retreat, one of the things that we offer is that we are all there to discover things. We're there to respect the process mm. and, um, and I think that museums, when we take off that overlay of, oh, this is this painter is important with a capital I, and we just kind of let ourselves repose into what's being offered to us, can also be um, a very surrendered, not vigilant space because we're here to play with these ideas. The chairs float in the air. The people float, the violinist floats in the air, and the woman in the Chagall painting has flowers instead of hair, you know? And so, Sometimes we have to create those cracked open Julia Cameron, the artist's way, artist dates. Uh, you know, she really put her mark on, on that beautiful idea of the artist date where you take yourself on a date to, to crack things open in that subjective way. Mm -hmm. um, they become all the more important because kids are, are really task intensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and taking those tasks seriously and, and knowing that we're going to get that creativity back is very important. And I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the people who come to this week of songwriting retreat 
have kids who are somewhere between 10 and 30, you know, <laughs> and they haven't written in 10 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. And they don't know if they can get that wheel going again, that wheel of poetic thinking again. So their first songs are a little bit creaky and full of tears <laughs> because they're returning to a space they didn't know they could get back. Um, but yeah, we ask a lot of ourselves when we think that we're going to notice that one glittering tear coming down our child's, that's, there's like, <laughs> I feel like I had maybe, you know, 10 of those in the 10 years of, of raising two kids. And, and that's okay. Another thing that somebody said, and, and I don't know if this is related to Mark Rothko or not, but she said, we, as artists think that we're going to be excellent parents because we have the child within. So the child within can engage with the actual child. And she said, but it turns out that the child within competes with mm-hmm. the actual child and <laughs> feels a little resentful. It's not mm-hmm. a, an equivalent, you know, it's one is a metaphor <laughs> and one is an actuality. And one is filled with wonders and, and hot air balloons and, and <laughs> dragons and unicorns. The other is filled with poop <laughs> and demands. <laughs> Not for long. <laughs> and, 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 and rationality, you know, a, a rationality that's, that, that demands that you take it on its own terms and it can be very tedious. So, <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I really try to put that message out there to people. There's a lot of messages that we have about it's over now. I had this room that I could go into and the room's closed. The room doesn't even exist anymore. The room is always there. It's, and that's not age. That's not time. That's not parenthood. That's not politics. We can always find, we can open that door again. It's just a matter of, of uh, deciding in our hearts how we're going to, you know, we all have a different key. That's, that's the challenge. Yeah. To bring us home, um, we've been talking so much, and I, I didn't expect this, but the way that the, the two personalities of the song, where you have this poetic voice who is open to Rothko and recognizing the painting's loneliness, and then you have the permission for the more objective voice to want to go get coffee, to not necessarily have to throw yourself into somebody else's pain, and the permission that the song gives you to to go in either direction um, and why this is such a uniquely authentic and honest song about an artwork, about the art viewing experience, especially abstract, inaccessible, quote unquote, inaccessible art. And of course, when it comes to abstract art, it's it's interesting too because there isn't only one way to experience it there isn't one way to get into it and this is something not only that you taught me (laughs) but then you quoted me in your book which i so appreciate because i was quoting you uh in meshing together uh what a song can mean and a piece of abstract art and how it can mean more than one thing, but it can't necessarily mean more than five things, or it can't mean anything. That if if a song or an artwork is so open to interpretation that it really can mean anything, then you haven't really done your job as a songwriter or even as an artist in making it about what it means to you, 
you haven't actually kind of written it honestly about what you wanted it to be around if then you you put it out into the world and it's open to anything and it's funny because i've actually had my own experience where an artwork meant something very very different to me than it meant to the artist as she was creating it when i did the episode on patty chang's melons um this was a video installation where i mean it's it's great it's gross it's it's weird it's absolutely compelling even though you're revolted the entire time where she puts a cantaloupe in her bra and then she slices into it and then spoons it out and eats it while she's talking to you i mean little mm. but uh i saw that when i was breastfeeding mm. and she never actually intended the piece to be about breastfeeding even though that's what I shaped the entire episode around because of what that meant to me, even if that wasn't what she meant. So I thought that was just kind of an interesting example of it definitely meant one of those five things. I don't mm -hmm. think that that is too far a stretch, that, that that fifth thing could mean everything to me, even if it wasn't what she necessarily intended. Yeah, I can see the connection. I think what I've come to realize in the course of this conversation because I've also had the lyrics right in front of me, I have you right in front of me, is that it's possible, I think, that Mark Rothko might just be the painter who is the exception that proves the five things rule. Because I think it's okay if Rothko is the one painter who can mean more than five things. And I think that that goes back to what we were talking about earlier that you can't describe people just don't describe Rothko in terms of his biography except except the suicide piece they talk about his paintings in terms of what it means to them and that is a-okay in my book and I think that that gives the people who want to be feeling more and don't get it don't get how those people are feeling so much. It gives them permission to come to a Rothko in their own place. I mean, mm -hmm. full confession, I had never had that Rothko experience, even when I wrote the episode. And then I was at SF MoMA, randomly, turned a corner, saw one, boom, it yeah. happened. I couldn't believe it happened. And actually, that's not even true. It wasn't a boom. I walked mm -hmm. up to it because you walk up to a Rothko and I noticed little, little like henpecks of white in a blue that suddenly looked like stars in mm. the sky. Mm. And whew, suddenly I, I was pulled in. And I wasn't expecting it. And I was so grateful that I had finally had, I'd finally met my Rothko. Fantastic. And maybe yeah. that's. You know, maybe that is hope for the kind pedestrians who have seen enough mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. maybe a different day they'll they'll see the they'll hear the urban angels, they'll see the ashy snow. Yeah. They'll have their they'll have that window open. And you know, we say it can only mean five things, but actually it's sort of like or it can mean many, many things if you can handle it, you know, because <laughs> life is actually so unbelievably variegated. Right. And 
there's such an infinite variety to to life itself and then you go inside yourself and think of the infinite moods that we have and the infinite personal connections and different bridges into to meaning you know visual bridges into meaning for ourselves and just the infinity of associations and the infinity of of meanings and colors and and beauties is in and of itself a beautiful thing to explore in a painting or in a song and arguably that's what he was giving to us that it's not about five things it's infinite isn't that immense and isn't that hard to handle Mm -hmm. as well Well, Dar Williams, thank you so much for taking the time to explain your songs to me and your process and to let me stand next to you in that museum. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Tamar. Did you know about his suicide? 
Some folks were born with a foot in the grave, but not me, of course. And she smiles as if to say we're in the know. Then she names a coffee place where we can go uptown. Now the painting is desperate, but the crowds wash away. In a world of kind pedestrians who've seen enough today. So, um, That's actually how I feel every time I play that song. <laughs> it's like it's got to be one of them. <laughs> I just cycle through those chords. So, so. Hub and Spoke Audio Collective.